You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Now, for the past few months, of course, you've heard me at the top of every show talk about the 10th Collective. This is a new initiative from Revision Path and State of Black Design. And we started the collective to pair black designers with companies looking to hire black designers. So if you're listening and you're looking for work, maybe you've been affected by some of these recent tech layoffs that have happened and you're looking for your next opportunity, then the 10th Collective is for you. It's free to join. All you have to do is fill out a short profile and you're all set. You'll only get contacted by companies when they're ready to talk to you, and you can hide your profile from companies or remain completely anonymous. The 10th Collective is meant to be a resource for you whether you're looking for your next opportunity or not, so it's just a really great asset to have in your back pocket for your career. Head over to the10thcollective.com to join, or check out the link in the show notes. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and some fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. So what are you waiting for? Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Now for this week's interview, I'm talking with Kevin Hawkins, an award-winning multidisciplinary design leader and the global UX director of Glovo in Barcelona, Spain. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Hello, I am Kevin Hawkins. I am the global UX director at Glovo in Barcelona, Spain. I manage a team of designers, researchers, operations specialists content writers, and it's about a 90-person team working on global food, grocery, and everything delivery in about 25 countries. And I should also mention that you also live in Spain. You're not just working remotely because of the pandemic. Right. Yes. I've lived in Barcelona now for just over six months. I moved for this job, and uh, it's been going really well. Oh, nice. How's Barcelona? Super hot. (laughs) (laughs) The the EU heat wave uh, has been roasting Barcelona, but it's also the time of year where they have neighborhood festivals. So it's been super nice to get to know the city and see it come alive, but also see all the tourists sweat in the sun. So aside from this move, like how's the year been going like in general? The year's been going really well. A lot of unexpected changes. I was previously living in Amsterdam, so it's been a lot of big changes. Another move for me. A new job, a new house, a new language. So it's uh, it's been a year of change. Let's talk about the work that you're doing at Glovo, where you mentioned you're their, their global UX director. Talk to me about Glovo. Yeah, so Glovo, if people don't know, is it's really big in Europe, Northern Africa, and Western Asia. We don't have a presence in North America, but we used to have a presence in South America. It is essentially if you were to combine 
DoorDash plus Uber Eats plus a little bit of FedEx. We are a delivery logistics company that started out doing food. We do groceries. We do appliances. We started doing COVID tests. Essentially, if you want anything in the city, we deliver it. We schedule it. We get it to your door. And we operate in 25 countries and just recently merged with a big group. So now we have about, let's say, total a couple billion orders a year that we handle as part of Delivery Hero. Wow. How has business been going during the pandemic? I'd imagine probably pretty well. Yeah, this is like one of the one of the kind of outlier industries that did really, really well. As everyone started ordering from home, we ramped up. We were one of the first in Europe to start scheduling at-home COVID tests because we could deliver you the test, but we could also deliver you the test with like a nurse or someone to actually, you know, administer the test. So it was a really good time for us to launch new features. I only joined in February, so I came in kind of like on the high on the high wave of all this growth, um, really trying to use that extra momentum and the profit margin that came with it to really invest in big things to kind of keep that momentum going post as people go back into the world and things open back up. Tell me more about sort of the team that you're overseeing. The team is my favorite part of this job and favorite part about the entire company, honestly. So Barcelona is the capital of Catalonia, which if you know anything about Spain, the different groups and factions, you know, they fought for a while. There's actually distinct cultures. So it's different than Madrid. It's different than Valencia or other areas of Spain. Very humble, very sweet, very down to earth people. The founders are both from this region and it's very much seen in the culture of the company. And so I really love the people. The roles that end up reporting into me are you know, typically design and research, but also design ops, research ops, localization, and internationalization teams that handle our translations and kind of cultural differences, as well as the content writers and a little bit of program management. What does a sort of typical day look like for you? <laughs> there is no typical day, I will tell you. So I am the highest ranked design person at Glovo. I report directly into the chief product officer. So my typical day is a mixture of diversity and inclusion and hiring practices meetings, making sure that research plans are adapted to different countries, dialects and languages. I have one-on-ones with five different heads of UX. Generally, I'm talking to a software account manager about renewals or new feature development, planning a research trip, or I'm, as part of my work with an employee resource group, we are planning an event or sharing new, new guidelines or new fact sheets to kind of inspire the company to be more inclusive. I was just about to ask you about that. You're, um, you head up this ERG called uh, Colors at Glovo. Tell me about that. Yeah, Colors of Glovo is a really fun part of the work I do. So the employee resource group is dedicated to diversity and inclusion, as well as cultural differences related to ethnicity, race, and a lot of the kind of nuances that happens within countries or within cultures. So Generally speaking, we have ERGs dedicated to pride and women's inclusion and you know, disabilities, but our ERG kind of tackles all of the, like, the gray areas, the really specific things regarding operating as a company that has a bunch of gig workers. How do you handle the issues felt by the couriers who are often immigrants? How do we adapt the product to be mindful of cultural differences and sensitivities in Western Asia and the Middle East and Northern Africa and Islamic countries? 
How do we, you know, modify for language? A number of things. Delivery to, you know, women in homes where a man can't enter the home. Like the number of things that comes through the ERG is super fascinating. Hmm. And we kind of help the company navigate these kind of differences and choices. Do you think Glovo will take off in the U.S.? Like, is that a plan to expand into this into this market? As someone who was born in America, I definitely think about this a lot. I don't think we will. We have a really successful strategy, which is based on being number one or number two in all the markets we operate in. Yeah. Uh, given the intense kind of, you know, competition of Uber and DoorDash and everyone in the U.S., I think it would take a very dedicated, expensive effort to come in and be number one or number two very quickly. So I don't see it happening in the near future. But now that we are part of Delivery Hero Group, we are the, in the top three delivery companies globally. Yeah, I would imagine like if Glovo were to expand into the U.S., like you'd have to contend with Amazon and they're just everywhere. I mean, ubiquitous. I'm surprised they don't. I know they used to do food delivery. It's funny. They used to have like Amazon restaurants or something, but I guess they just decided to give that up. And now they just do, of course, you know, package deliveries. They do grocery deliveries, et cetera. But for what you're mentioning with Glovo, it sounds like this FedEx, DoorDash, Uber Eats kind of hybrid sort of probably covers some gaps that maybe something like an Amazon wouldn't cover. Yeah, we have a couple of um, things people don't expect. There's a really famous feature from the very beginning of the history of Glovo called the anything feature, or in Spanish, the quiero, which is you actually describe what you want to receive and the courier will go out and get it. And that yeah. means you could say, hey, I need two pillowcases and a pillow from Zara Home. Zara Home isn't a partner of Glovo, but this courier has a credit card and can go into the store, buy it, expense it to you, and bring it to your house within 25 minutes. Whoa, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. That reminds me of, um. oh my God, I'm trying to think if, do you remember Webvan? Yes. Oh my God. It kind of, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Webvan from back in the day. I don't know if they were that exacting, but I like that feature. That sounds really cool. Yeah. There were a couple of concierge apps that came out back around them. There's like Clever Road and there's some like older ones that are no longer existent because mm-hmm. the margins were terrible and trying to accommodate random requests at random times always became very challenging. But it's, it's cool because we still have that part of the app. Because it's it's the oldest feature, people love it, and when it works really well, I mean, it's it's a moment of absolute customer delight. Yeah, we have a place here in Atlanta called Zifty, and Zifty has been around probably since oh my god, maybe two thousand three or something like that. They are like the pre Uber Eats or pre DoorDash or something like. If you wanted to get something from a local restaurant, you know, depending on where your zip code was. They could get it for you, but also they had like a little grocery store. So if you needed to get toiletries or aspirin or whatever, like you could get that along with your food and they sort of bring it all together. I think they might have taken a bit of a stumble during the pandemic. Well, well, one services like Uber Eats and such came about. So now you didn't have to use Zifty. You could use any of these other services, which were cheaper. But the thing with Zifty is they were really good about trying to make sure that like all the drivers were paid a livable wage, all that sort of stuff. They weren't trying to undercut you on tips or anything like that as maybe a similar type service might do, not naming any names, but you know what I mean. They might not try to like undercut them on that sort of stuff. I don't know how how well they're faring during the pandemic because they stopped doing the grocery stuff because I think just the possibility of transmission of COVID. 
And so now it's just restaurants, yeah. but they've expanded into like a mobile app. I'm curious to see kind of how they weather it through because like they'll be coming up on 20 years next year. And it's amazing how they've managed to kind of weather the storm as society has changed. Cause I think in the beginning, people were like, wait a minute. The only thing I really would order delivery would be like pizza or maybe Chinese food. And now you can get pho, you can get sushi, you can get pillows. Like you, like you mentioned, you can get anything now via delivery. Yes, exactly. The thing that we saw really like spike during COVID was what we call quick commerce. So it was these brands like Gorillas or Getir, in some cases, uh, even grocery stores directly offering what was 10-minute delivery for things. And this is what led to the same rat race that Amazon triggered when they launched one-day delivery. All the retailers have tried to scramble to get three-day, two-day, one-day, same-day, you know, few-hour delivery, sparked by this kind of oh, that's possible, you know, Mm -hmm. so then people find use cases they didn't, you know, normally have. In our space, it was quite literally the grocery store companies and these quick commerce companies pushing food because food was always, we get it to you, you have companies that have couriers like us, and then you have some restaurants that have their own drivers like Notoriously Domino's, Mm -hmm. and we we merged them together. But then you had products that were committing to $10 or, you know, a $10 guarantee or 10 minute guarantee and you get your money back, which is significant pressure on a logistics company because you don't have staff. You know, people are volunteering. They get online when they want to get online. It can rain. You might be in a hilly city like San Francisco. The number of variables were endless, let alone like things being out of stock. So we had to contend with this really, really heated race. Uh, gets here raised a billion dollars almost in funding, which is an unheard of number for a company that just started. So it was a really fun time for the industry. It also sounds like, I mean, you, I think you mentioned this earlier, but like you're also delivering like COVID tests too. I don't know if any other service is really doing that. Yeah, I think it took a long time, but I think Uber eventually decided to start like letting you schedule COVID tests with CVS and then perfectly scheduling to pick up and drop off. But that was the closest I've seen on the large scale. We mm-hmm. were actually delivering tests and then also delivering practitioners who could administer the tests oh. because it was just the perfect remedy. We started doing supply-based delivery. So if you were ordering an appliance, we'd have an installer. You're buying a TV, we have an installer. Imagine everything from Best Buy. They have that service called Geek Squad where they come and install things. It's just timing and scheduling of a person yeah. to arrive with goods. So we were like, we sell goods, we deliver them on time. Why couldn't we deliver a person with them? Nice. So it's sort of also like a task rabbit in there too. Yeah, a little bit. As long as we could estimate the cost before, because you know, like task rabbits, you know, there could be overage. We didn't. We don't really get into that. We have like a single transaction, single promise, single sale. Yeah. Um, it was applicable to many, many things. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the team being the best part about what you do. What would you say is the most difficult part? I mean, it's also the the size, the scale. The differences within the markets that we operate in is probably the difficult part. Whenever you come up with what you think is a simple solution or that makes sense, it is never going to apply equally in Portugal as it will in Kyrgyzstan. You know, it never really makes sense the same in rural Nigeria or rural Kenya as it does in downtown Barcelona or in a very dense three three city country like Poland when you have urban sprawl when you have a you know six language barrier when the couriers or the partners speak completely different languages than the average customer these complications these like nuances these details makes the work 
for the team really complicated. It also makes funding and prioritizing research, I would say, fun. Some would say, you know, complex. Yeah. Now, you've served at a number of different companies. Uh, You've even worked internationally before, which we'll get into a little bit later. I kind of want to take things back to the beginning and sort of talk about your origin story. Like, tell me about where you grew up. Yeah, I don't get to talk about this too much, but I'm originally from the Washington, D.C. area. So my first home was in the city, and then we moved back and forth between Rockville, Maryland, Silver Spring, Maryland, and back into the capital. And I spent pretty much all my time in in D.C. with a lot of travel with my dad, who is from the military, and then my mom's family, which is African from Liberia. So we spent uh, time flying back between the two continents, but also just around the U.S. at different kind of military bases. Oh, nice. First generation. I like that. Yeah, exactly. Did you have like a lot of exposure to like art and design and stuff growing up? Yeah. So my mom is was a nurse and then kind of broke away from the family expectations going into medical because she wasn't happy and became a fashion designer. And that was a big inspiration for my ability to problem solve and really understanding when people say they want certain things, but what they really want is something else, which is, of course, like a big skill for designers. And then my dad was in the military, but then left and became a labor rights attorney and was really working with a lot of politics and advisory and also had his own business. And so I was always surrounded by creative thinking, problem solving, a lot of politics, a lot of public relations. And it always made me think about what if I did something similar to this? And I ended up helping them build their websites and their marketing collateral. And that's really how I got started. Mm. When did you sort of know that this was something you really wanted to like, like study and go into as a kid? So that happened really early. I think it's probably as early as 10. So When I was super young, this is like seven or eight, if you went to school in the States especially, you know, you had to get a book cover and you had to get a binder cover sometimes because you had like even in odd days in middle school and all your textbooks were either rented or they were really expensive. So you wanted to cover them and to protect them, maybe sell them back later on in the year. And my mom and I came up with the scheme of, you know, making the coolest covers. And so we had a little business called Cover Me Cool. And I essentially <laughs> would, would be the model at school and people would ask questions and then we would sell them. And that got really big. And we ended up going to a trade show. We talked to Meet Five Star. We got a patent attorney involved. Wow. It was my first really getting involved in business. So by 10, I had sold a company and had understood a bit of the politics of trademark law and copyright law and decided I wanted to be more on the creative side of business, but definitely got my my teeth wet and was really excited to do more kind of independent design work. So you had your own business and sold it by the time you were 10? Yeah, I would say sold is a nicer version of this. Like we did ultimately couldn't afford to scale and license, you know, NFL prints and everything. Uh-huh. And someone wanted to buy it from us. And we said, obviously, that sounds great. So we um we sold. Sometimes I think about what would happen if I had it, but I think ultimately it was it was a great winning lesson. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, look, an exit is an exit. And the fact that you sort of were able to sell off the business and still keep going, that's a great thing. I say this, of course, as you are a child, but like that's great <laughs> that you were able to to have that experience kind of, you know, really early on that way. 
So given that, did that sort of put in your mind like, oh, this is something that I really, that sort of put in your mind, this is something that you really wanted to like do as a business was design? Yes. I still wasn't sure what discipline within design. So this is kind of when I started looking at school differently. I used to be very anti-school. I was very good at like primary school, really hated tests, so didn't really like the process to go into college. But then I was like, maybe I can be excited by the idea of web design and like what, what they were calling new media back then. Because I was like, oh, this is not traditional. This is not just marketing collateral. This could be service design. This is marketing automation. This is branding. It always had a bit more to do with the business than just the, the service provided. And I, I liked that. And that's how I kind of got started. Mm-hmm. And now speaking of school, you did end up going to the art institutes for a while. You studied web design and interactive media. What was that time like? It was really intense. So my my family, the child of a divorced parents. And so you know, money wasn't always consistent. So me having these jobs where I was doing websites and making templates on WordPress and selling the theme forest and all this was like a great, you know, revenue source for, for my mom and my, our household. And mm-hmm. so when I went to school, I had a job already and I was still working full time doing marketing and creative service stuff for nonprofits in Washington, D.C. And I was like, oh, OK, so I really like my job, but I should go get certified and get a degree and get some kind of you know accreditation for it. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I ended up learning more from my job than I did from school. And that's ultimately why I ended up leaving school. I feel like that's a lot of the case when it comes to design. I think particularly design, if and I'm I'm just sort of trying to place this in terms of time frame, like if you did this anywhere in like the early 2000s, I feel like that's totally okay because a lot of schools didn't really have curriculum that spoke to like web design, visual design. Maybe they had like advertising or communication design, or you went to a for-profit school like the art institutes and you learned stuff there. But a lot of what you learned because of how the industry was moving was just being hands-on. Like you learned through working. Yeah, certainly. I learned a lot more always from learning from people I looked up to, people who wrote books or spoke or were you know generous with their time. Or just people at the workplace who were willing to teach me or delegated work they didn't want to do. <laughs> Whatever way it came to me, I was able to kind of take these opportunities and find a way to make myself passionate about it. Mm. And now after you left the Art Institutes, you kind of worked at a lot of different places. And I won't go into all of them, but I'll list off just kind of a few of the, the more prominent places where you've worked, which is Chase. You've worked at Capital One, Gap the Brookings Institution, PwC, EY, many others. When you sort of look back at that time, because you were sort of contracting from place to place, like, talk to me about who that Kevin Hawkins was. Like, who was he? What was he thinking? What was he trying to accomplish back then? I never intended to go to any of these companies and leave. You know, I think that's one of the things that, like, millennials get blamed for the whole job hopping fad. I ultimately always wanted to stay. But I just had a, a lot of, let's say, self worth from my from my mom, um, and her and the way she raised me. And whenever I dealt with workplace discrimination, ageism, racism, any of these things in the workplace, I always said it would be better for myself and my career for me to be happy at work than to. I never saw going through discrimination and oppression as earning my dues. Mm. So. I, found new places or I worked on startups or I made enough money 
making websites for people to give me a month or two to find a new job. That's a powerful statement there. And I think it's something that, you know, I don't know, it's interesting when you think about people in their early careers, because that whole kind of pay your dues sort of bit. I get that. Like, I look, I got a black mama, too. And she certainly was like, sometimes there's, you know, things that you have to do that you don't want to do to get where you have to be. And I, I understand that to a fault. Uh, <laughs> like, I get that there may be some things where like, you just have to learn it. Like you just, this is how you learn it. But if it's like you've said, where you're putting up with these, you know, like pervasive isms at work, racism, sexism, et cetera, like why stay? You're not winning any awards by staying. You know what I mean? No, exactly. And it wasn't always, that wasn't always the reason why I left. Sometimes, you know, new opportunities come. Sometimes you sort of stagnate or you stop learning. I always say either you're there to learn or to earn. And, you know, sometimes there's other motivations like a passion or a mission that aligns with you. But when you're not learning, when you realize the industry is getting bigger, it's getting very profitable, the work Mm -hmm. is extremely valuable, it's being tied to massive growth and revenue, you also want to start earning more. And because I came in without a degree, I started, I was originally second guessing myself. So my whole tactic was I'm always more valuable in the interview phase than I am two years into a company. So if I want to make up for the money that I'm not earning by not having that degree, it makes more sense for me to take opportunities when people present them to me than to kind of trudge through the interview process and promotion panels with people I've been working with for two and a half, three years. Okay, you just raised something interesting there I want to touch on. So you did go to the Art Institute. You got an associate's degree, right? Yeah. So even though you had that like degree from an institution that someone could look at and say, oh, you must be a designer. Did that still not sort of help you throughout your career? Like to have that as sort of a, I almost want to say like a status symbol of sorts. No, honestly, it wasn't looked at the same way. The Art Institute doesn't have the the prestige of a Corcoran or a SCAD or a RISD. In addition, I got in web design and I was doing a lot of user experience, information architecture, HCI work. So they didn't see it as directly relevant. I, you know, went to, I got a two-year degree, but I didn't take the like final exam and do the official ceremony. So mm-hmm. I always had to send in transcripts versus like the official diploma letter that comes from the university office. And I didn't really care. I was really happy that I made that choice to leave. And the work spoke for itself more often than not. But then there would be companies, especially as I got higher up in D.C. or in New York, that just would look at nothing else in California and Europe sort of getting more and more attractive. Interesting. I'm just curious about that, because, like, for example, I don't have a design degree. Like I did go to did go to college, got a degree in math. And then started out kind of as a designer, even though I kind of just picked up design in my spare time. And even now at this stage in my career, like I'm at least 20 years out from my first design position. Me not having a design degree, I think, is still looked at at some places as like, oh, well, you're not really a designer. Despite the fact that I've like run my own studio, have all this design experience in other companies. They're like, yeah, but you don't have the degree and I feel like companies sometimes still place way too much emphasis on that. Certainly. I mean, I can tell you the number of jobs where I actually got to the final round. I even have jobs where I was given the offer and then it was rescinded because they hadn't checked which degree I had. Oh, um, man. 
And I thought that was insane. You know, some of these companies had public stances, you know, on articles and then Forbes. We don't look at degrees anymore. Degrees aren't a requirement for most of our jobs. But the second design started getting a seat at the table. Design was informing, you know, P&L. It was just it was informing business strategy, partnerships. They started really looking at designers, especially when you go into UX, as part of the business organization. Sometimes you reported into COOs or CMOs, and they ultimately saw it as flywheel effect. So that you invest in UX, you get customers happy, they buy more, you have more customers, mm-hmm. which is great. But at the same time, the work is like we're still always interviewed based on portfolios, you're based on references, you're based on the work you've done in your past. So why is the degree so important when you right. spend 80% of the interview looking at work done? Right. No, that's true. That's very true. I remember vividly when I got, it wasn't my first design job, but I was working at AT&T as a senior designer. And it was one of the, the campuses here in Atlanta. And pretty much everyone else on the design team not only had a design degree from the art institutes, but they kind of all like went to the same classes and stuff together. It was very much a pipeline from this school to this company, which I think may be why some companies look at that, like think, oh, well, if you've come from this school and you have this degree, then you can automatically meet maybe this baseline level of work. But when I tell you I was designing circles around those jokers at AT AT&T, and a lot of them paid me dust because like I didn't have a design degree and they wouldn't even, these would be like other black designers too, wouldn't even talk to me. And so when it was time for me to leave, I was like, I'm out, I'm out, I'm gone, peace. And so I 100% understand like the want to like get out of company and you want to be there and it just doesn't work out. And it's not anything that has to do with you. It's company culture stuff. It's all kind of other stuff. And it's like, if you don't feel happy here, why stay? You know? Exactly. Exactly. And what I noticed, you know, from, you know, just doing research, like you also had your own things that you were doing throughout this time. So you weren't relying just on working at these companies to kind of, I guess, fulfill this creative want that you had. You you founded other companies, uh, Pipevine, Q Review, Bravo Score. Talk to me about those. It sounds like you were pretty busy. Yeah, I've always had this. And I think it's probably from watching my parents be in jobs they weren't super happy about and then watching them start their businesses parallel to their work. So I always thought, oh, that's a thing you can do. It isn't like you have some contract where you are you know, enslaved to one employer and you need to tell the employer you're going to leave before you do work for a new employer. I always kind of saw that you know, small businesses are often started alongside full-time jobs. And I said, you know, I do like what I do for a living. And ultimately, I see myself advising business. I see myself advising product directors and program managers. And this is what they use to determine budgets. And this is what they use to determine expansions and launch strategy. I can do that. Why, why shouldn't I launch something as a UX designer with the background that has worked also in research? I can validate a problem. I can talk about size of of the market. I can talk about who is addressable within the first version of the product that we release. I could do a pitch. I can definitely do this. Mm-hmm. And I started looking, of course, more and more at San Francisco and startup companies and how they got their start. And you're like, cool. Designers, I personally think this is even before, you know, Brian Chesky and Airbnb. But designers, I think, are better startup CEOs. 
Like they pitch things and you want to listen. They're beautiful if they do their job with communications design very well. And I said, let's start some companies. And I had no idea where to look. And I ultimately looked for people who were already that passionate founder, visionary type, and they didn't know how to build great user experience. They didn't know how to collect email newsletters and do a landing page and kind of build up momentum before it launched. And I partnered with them as their technical co-founder because I knew enough code, enough front end, enough design to be dangerous. And <laughs> they were the business finance people. So you really kind of got your your own business education in a way too by running these businesses and working with them. Yeah, certainly. I like that. I definitely can empathize with that. I've always had my own thing on the side, wherever it is I was working. And I'll tell you what's interesting. Some of these new startups, and I know this just from working in startups in the past five years, and I don't know if a lot of them have them, but the ones that I worked in always had a clause that you had to disclose anything else that you were doing outside of work that might, I don't know if it might conflict or whatever, but they just wanted to know that like, well, what else are you working on that's not the nine to five job. And sometimes I would answer and sometimes I wouldn't because it's really none of their business because none of the places I worked for had any sort of relation to what I was doing, which was this podcast. But I find it interesting now that companies are like, yeah, what else are you doing to try to, I guess, I don't know, capitalize on your time? I know there's this whole thing now about quiet quitting and I hate that. (laughs) I hate that term so bad because it's really just about setting boundaries at work. It's not whatever, I don't know, 19th century industrial revolution thing you might be thinking about with quiet quitting. I just hear that. It just, uh, I hate that term. It does hurt me. Honestly, it's like, okay, either it's disengagement or it's just the phase before someone gets fed up, but it's not disingenuous to be tired of bad conditions or being undervalued or underpaid or outgrowing opportunity. If you feel like life is taking you a different direction than your current employer, there is always going to be the, the phase before you quit. And that isn't called quiet quitting, in my opinion. That's just called really assessing your worth, your value, and your future. Mm-hmm. Part of me feels like, I might get in trouble by saying this. <laughs> Part of me feels like that the media is a little bit complicit in this, because I really am only hearing this from like Business Insider, Wall Street Journal, stuff like that, that are talking about quiet quitting. But I feel like it's also in retaliation to a lot of workers, at least here in the States, now realizing the power that they have with unionizing. And so they're cutting down on this whole quiet quitting thing because, I mean, at least in some of the places I worked, that quiet quitting, I'm using air quotes here, were the seeds to start unionizing. Like that was the fertile ground for people to start thinking about how can we campaign for having better work conditions, et cetera. And like they talked to a union rep and now we got a union. Like I worked at Glitch and we unionized shortly before they laid most of us off, but we did at least have that happen. And I want to say that the fertile ground for that was a lot of people just being sort of fed up with how certain conditions were. Yeah. And honestly, businesses will always have, let's say, a fiduciary interest in not wanting people to unionize because it's easier to manipulate and get what you want as a business for your shareholders or even for yourself. When you are dealing with individuals, You know, it's also why the whole idea of people knowing what everyone makes is dangerous to businesses, because Mm -hmm. then, you know, if you're getting paid less, you know, if they value that same work at a higher value. Yep. Some of these things are solved in some places in Europe, but, you know, it's still the same battle. I am 
have to deal with lots of culture differences, and this is one of them. A lot of the teams and companies I work with and some of my, my peers in Spain and Portugal, you know, deal with this, which is, you know, I think it's quite positive, but it is tricky that, you know, our employees talk to each other about how much they make. If we do a market adjustment and someone was adjusted more than someone else, it definitely comes up much quicker than you think it will. Yeah. So you were running these businesses, you were working at these different places. It sounds like you were doing a lot here in the States between all of that stuff. But eventually you ended up moving. You moved to Amsterdam. Like what, what was behind the decision to do that? Yeah. So I moved to San Francisco for four and a half years and I was really happy out there, but I really couldn't see myself building a life in terms of buying a house, starting a family, which is the cost, the income disparity, the homelessness crisis. And really just it's, it's quite out of touch if you stay in certain bubbles. And I always had a really good balance. I had my my family is quite mixed, um, African, Filipino, American. I see different classes within America and other countries on a regular basis. And so to kind of juxtapose the comments and things you would hear in Silicon Valley with the reality of most of the world became a bit frustrating. And I said, you know, am I really doing myself a service, spending all of my money and all of my energy just trying to survive in this city? Or maybe I go back to D.C. or maybe I finally go and try out Europe. Mm. And Europe ended up winning. Europe ended up winning, winning at a very interesting time. <laughs> Who got elected? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Safety of black people in America. I mean, number of things, right? And so I was really happy to to be able to go and visit. And then once I was able to secure a job that was able to sponsor me and keep me there, I you know it was a big sigh of relief that I exhaled because it was just such a significant upgrade on my quality of life. Yeah. So you ended up working in Amsterdam. You were working at Booking.com. And then now you're here in Barcelona working at Glovo. I'm just curious. I mean, this is from the dumb American perspective. So forgive me here. But like, is it easy moving between countries like that in Europe? No. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I really wish it was simpler. Honestly, the visas don't transfer between countries. Uh, so we were just talking about the whole degree thing, and I, I won't talk too badly about my new home country, but <laughs> I had a, a high-qualified you know, migrant visa in the Netherlands because I worked in tech, and they wanted more tech workers, and I made good money, and I brought lots of you know job opportunities and revenue by having a you know high-funded, well-run company be headquartered in your country. But that same visa wouldn't transfer to Spain. So I had to mm. re-qualify, do background checks in America and in the Netherlands, do fingerprinting, do a degree certificate, all these things all over again. As if I hadn't just lived four years in the Netherlands and bought a house. You know, like I was considered myself European at that point, but that's not how it works. Wow. And you've been now in Barcelona, you said, for about six months? Yep, about six months. What is the design scene like there? Like, have you like sought it out or have you found it there? So there are probably around like 2,500 startups. Glovo is definitely in that top group of the biggest. We're, we're a unicorn. But the design scene isn't as large, of course, as a London, which is massive, or as, as an Amsterdam, which is definitely a tech hub. But it's very warm, I would say. The UX community in Barcelona has big players like HP and Amazon who are directly our neighbors. Um, as Glovo, we're in a neighborhood called Poblenau, which is the, the tech hub. 
But then you also just have to factor in the culture. Like there's a lot of illustration and animation in, in the UX and design community within Barcelona just because of the culture is so rich in architecture and detail and craft. The community is very warm because the city is very warm and people are generally happier in my opinion and they have beach meetups and there's a thriving tech scene that's definitely growing and it's, it's really fun to be there right at the moment where it's blossoming it's definitely going to surpass in my opinion some of the bigger cities uh, the only key difference is that pay in the south is lower than in northern europe which is you know models very similarly to pay in the south of the u.s versus you know new york for example Mm, interesting. How would you compare the design community to say the ones like in Amsterdam or in DC? Like, was that, was that something that you thought about as you went to these different places? Yeah, certainly. I think that I always think about diversity of groups and communities and, you know, DC's definitely a melting pot. Amsterdam's a melting pot. Barcelona is, you know, one of the largest cities in a region of Spain, and therefore it's not Madrid, it's not the capital. The tech that's there isn't one industry like the military or government or fintech. And so it's a lot of people from completely different backgrounds, a lot of immigrants from other Spanish-speaking countries or from Latin America or Hispanic America, like Brazil and Argentina. And so there is this really interesting new kind of perspective that you get. A lot of the competition or comps we talk about at work you know, like Rappi and companies that don't even operate on the continent because of the backgrounds people have and the different kind of work they've been doing. And it's really, it's really cool. Like I still do all of my work in English and I'm still able to navigate the community and the community is very open and friendly to expats. They, they often speak three languages and it's a very vibrant, different community, but I really enjoy it. That's good to hear that they're kind of friendly to expats. Um, I had always been curious about that sort of thing. I mean, I've been considering at this stage where I'm at right now, like as we're recording this, I am currently, we'll say between opportunities at the moment. And look, I've been in the U.S. for a long time. I'm from here or whatever. But I also know that the skills that I have, like I'll look for the types of positions that I do. And most of them are in Europe. Like none of them are in the U.S. And I've thought about possibly maybe doing it like, oh, just like visiting or something. Part of me is like, Maybe I'm a little too old to do that. Also, my family is, I'm like close to my family that's close to where I live here. And I don't want to like put an ocean between us, you know, but it really sort of sounds like you've found a way for yourself throughout your entire career. Like you didn't have one set path that you really were trying to follow. You just sort of went where your passions led you. Yeah, I think the only thing that's been consistent has been, you know, I wanted to be a C-suite executive. Okay. I think that's something that like my family makes fun of me for from like being a kid that used to be called the governor. I probably am still called the governor. Um, <laughs> my, my family is like I always projected these like long term visions, five year plans. We're going to do this. I was always rallying people towards a mission or a goal. And so I've always known I wanted to be in a leadership position. But as I got into design, I didn't really see one. So I was always trying to navigate my way into learning new skills because I wasn't in the business you know, area. I wasn't in operations. I wasn't in marketing. I wasn't in the areas that had CC positions. And I said to myself, if I'm ever going to get there, 
it has to be the story of like the receptionist who learns all the skills by being around all the people in the business and eventually becomes COO and then CEO. So I told myself, I'm in design. There's no direct ladder to that role. So I'm going to have to get close to the marketers and close to the engineers and close to sales and close to legal and really understand the in and out of every business I worked for. And now you're you're in the C-suite now. Would you, would you say that's sort of where you're at now with Glovo? Almost. Yeah. I mean, no one else above me does design work. I report to the chief product officer, but I am solely responsible for all the budget for design research content. It's about a 90 person team and growing. And so it is, it does feel like I'm almost there. Like, I think the one thing that would get me there would be like a VP of experience position or very few companies have these, but a chief design officer. Mm. How have you worked to stay your authentic self throughout your career? It actually is easier to answer than I thought it would be. It has been teaching. So I never did it with the intention of keeping myself grounded, but I always felt and was making time to to mentor people into the industry. I have some close friends now who came from, you know, program manager jobs at NASA or were teachers or were bankers, and now they're in UX or in different areas of tech. And I always found it really, I don't know, just thrilling to show them how transferable their skills were or show them that you have a passion to make apps. And yes, app companies and companies in general fail at 90% mark, but these are the skills you need to be able to validate your assumptions and listen to customer feedback and iterate quickly and fail fast and, and get them into positions where they either were launching their own companies or working in UX or in different tech roles. And that is what led me to eventually teach a class on data visualization at Georgetown University, and then start teaching in general UX courses, design thinking courses. It's been about six years of me teaching now. Oh, nice. So you're teaching. Is that something you're also doing now in Barcelona or are you just working at Glovo? I am just working at Glovo. I was working with a boot camp in Amsterdam called uh, Growth Tribe. But now that I'm in Barcelona, I'm looking for new opportunities, mostly by partnering the department with local universities, Ironhack in Barcelona, uh, kind of building an apprenticeship program, which I feel like is really missing in the industry. When we talk about not enough junior positions, you know, at the very least, people should be teaching and bringing in people who are early career programs and apprenticeship programs to kind of build that pipeline for juniors. Yeah, I find a lot of companies now don't really want to talk to people. Like when it comes to like positions and stuff, they'll make sure that the the I don't know applicant tracking system does all the work. They don't really want to talk to you or interview you or get to know you unless you pass through those hurdles and stuff. But that apprenticeship part certainly is something that's missing. I I feel like that's something that has been identified throughout the years, and a lot of companies just haven't tried to make that a part of what they do. I mean, they still have take home tests within interview processes, so I feel like having an apprenticeship it might be a little bit too much for them to handle at the moment, but I would like to see more of that kind of stuff too. Yeah. I think there's always like a scapegoat, whether it be time or, you know, team maturity, but, you know, having an intern, having an apprentice, having a really early junior requires that same level of consistency with how the department or organization is run with also there being clear career paths 
But then in addition, having someone actually be responsible and given credit for molding the mind and techniques of a new person in the industry. And I think because of the number of operational, admin, and kind of HR-related aspects of this that are not in place at most companies or are always in some state of shift, they always want to say, oh, we just won't do it. But then at the same time, we'll complain about why it's so expensive to only hire seniors or why the maturity isn't great when none of your team has any experience mentoring people. Mm-hmm. I know I certainly hear it from, I've heard it at companies I've worked for, where they're like, oh, we can't find any good candidates or they'll put out a listing and get 300 resumes and then not look at any of them. You know, like, I don't know, hiring in itself is broken. And I may be speaking from a bit of a jaded place at the moment because I'm looking for work. But that's something I've noticed, though, throughout my career at places I've worked where like designers, it really is that thing about you have to know someone. It's really hard to kind of just come in right off the ground floor to get into some companies. But that's that's pretty sad. Yeah, I would agree. It's design is becoming like real estate. Um, Everyone has to get some comfortable shoes and go door knocking and cold calling. And there's tons of doors being slammed and phone calls being hung up on. And especially with any kind of recession, it gets really tricky. Like the the majority of my like career, I would say, post the engineering, marketing, design stuff I was doing was in 2008, 2009. And obviously it was the worst time. So, but I came in super humble, obviously didn't need a ton of money, you know, in terms of what people were expecting for like the top of the band for certain positions. You know, I was, I was undercutting them because I was there to learn. At the same time, I also was keeping all of like all of my expenses super, super low. That isn't possible anymore. The market is insane. The cost and inflation has gone up just for living in places. And we've all talked about this, you know, ad nauseum at this point about whether people should be paid living wages or not, which is an obvious answer. And design has, and Jack in general, has been such a like savior for some people because it has been rapidly growing in income and people are making great salaries and new positions are being formed in leadership and there's career paths. But then when it doesn't have respect at companies, you can look at Fannie Mae, for example, you see whole divisions being cut or companies no longer investing in UX or And it really shows you that we have to, not just because we find it interesting, you have to develop these other skills, you have to develop these networks. And that awkward phone call or in mail or walking up to a random person at a conference feels like a luxury we can ignore for a lot of the time. But when it comes down to it, those are the people and the connections that have saved me most at times when I didn't have a job or went to a new country or got laid off or in one instance got fired. What's the best piece of advice that you've given to someone that is like they're hearing your story and they want to follow in your footsteps? Like, what would you tell them? I would say, and this is going to be a quote because I love quotes. I want to get this quote correct. So it is literally true that you can succeed best and quickest by helping others to succeed, which is a quote by Napoleon Hill. And it's just me being generous with my time. It's me taking random phone calls for Brazilian graphic design students at 12 p.m. when it's their 5 p.m. so that they can ask (laughs) questions about how to go from graphic design into UX. It's me going to a lesbians who tech drink in D.C. randomly to see if anybody's there because they're looking for a technical co-founder or they don't know how to do something. 
it's just me volunteering at design critiques or UX speed dating where you're kind of giving people advice quickly or you're answering questions in a Q&A. I think these things are the things that we can always make time for. Ultimately, in the moments when I didn't have a job, I did more of them because they build connections and there is, you know, a bit of a bias or an interest for me to make connections. At the same time, it's what keeps me motivated and inspired and keeps my spirits high in the lowest moments is the people who I've helped or the people who, you know, use me as a reference or call me when something has shattered their world. But for me, it's something I've done 10, 15, 20 times and can easily walk them through how to navigate it. Do you feel satisfied creatively? In my current role? Yes. Like, I think I haven't been for a little bit of time. Like I was, I've been a director now for three years. I was a director at a small company and then I was in management, but not a director at booking. And at booking, I was extremely, extremely happy. And then the recession hit. And that was ultimately why everything kind of fell apart. And I left and I was looking for about a year and a half, almost two years for another place where I could see myself being home. And Glovo definitely is that. But the director role is less about designing mock-ups. It's more about designing career paths, designing a culture, designing kind of product marketing and employer brand. Like I'm, I'm building the team I wish I was on. I'm building the kind of company culture, onboarding practices, promotion processes that I wish I had in my career. And then I'm also building myself up to hopefully be an inspiring speaker and leader and even better teacher. Um, and I look up to people like Zoma St. John, who was the former CMO of Netflix, in, in that kind of realm, always looking to share more knowledge, invite more people into the room, add a seat at the table, and just constantly kind of question the norms we see. I would say you'd make a great public speaker. Have you been looking into doing some more of that? Yes, every chance I can get. <laughs> Okay. Where do you see yourself like in the next, let's say like five years or so? Like, what do you want the next chapter of the Kevin Hawkins story to look like? This has gotten trickier ever since, ever since I moved to Europe, because I think the answer used to always be some version of fame or being CXO, chief experience officer at a thing or like a really notable household name globally. But now it really has to do with about being like, I'd rather be really, really important at a small company for people who really need our services than to be just another person in a role at a very large company with customers who don't really feel any passion towards our product. And just to sort of, you know, wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you, about your work and everything? Where can they find that online? Yeah, so I'm most active for work things on Twitter, which is um, at Kevin Hawkins DC, and then on Instagram, uh, Kevin Hawkins Design. Same thing on LinkedIn, Kevin Hawkins Design. I'm often posting about work we're doing, public events. I do quite a bit of public speaking, both in the US and in Europe. So I have several talks coming up this fall, but I'm mostly sharing work-related things, uh, things tied to my business and how I'm developing myself and my team on Twitter and LinkedIn. All right. Sounds good. Well, Kevin Hawkins, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. You know, sort of like I alluded to earlier in the interview, I can really tell that you're someone that has continually throughout your career, throughout your life, probably really taken a chance on yourself. 
Like, you know, the skills that you're able to bring to the table, you know what you're able to do. And instead of waiting for an opportunity to come to you, whether it's starting your own business or moving to another country, you are taking the chance on yourself to further your own career and further where you are in life. And I think that's something that's super inspiring for anyone right now to really hear. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. I really appreciate the time. I really love the show. Big fan. I think that everyone should reach out to whoever they want to talk to and learn from. And like you said, that uh, take a chance on yourself and you'd be surprised the odds are in your favor. Big, big thanks to Kevin Hawkins. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Kevin and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are provided by Brevity and Wit. This episode of Revision Path is also brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? You know, as always, we'd love to hear from you. So please don't be a stranger. Reach out to us on social media. We're on both Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or on Spotify. The more people you tell about the show, the bigger we become. And the further we could extend our reach to talk to black designers, developers, artists, and other digital creatives from all over the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.